So that brings us to the next section. And this is the third condition. Reject worldliness. Reject worldliness. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. In this section, John develops the third condition. That those who walk in the light with Yahweh reject worldliness. After the deep emphasis on correct beliefs and the need to obey Yahweh, John pauses briefly to encourage the believers that resisting the false teachings and enticements of the world is worth the sacrifice, hardship, and perseverance that obedience to Yahweh demands. By reject worldliness, he doesn't mean reject the world, the material world. It doesn't mean go Amish. It doesn't mean seek to escape this physical material realm and become enlightened. It doesn't mean that everything in the material realm is evil and bad. The idea that I can't wait till I leave this place and everything will be better. That's not what John is talking about. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That Christ entered into the world and dwelt with us and became a part of it. Not in sync with it, but a part of it. And that ultimately one day Christ is going to come back one day to redeem the world and establish his physical literal throne on earth as literal physical kingdom on earth. What he means is the world philosophies. Just like the flesh can refer to the physical flesh body that God created for us and is good, but it also can sometimes refer to the sin nature. So the world can also sometimes refer to the physical material realm that God created and put us in and is redeeming. But it also can refer to the philosophies, the ideas of the world. This is where Ecclesiastes at the very end says the teachings of the teacher are good and wise and they're they're beneficial for building on. But be wary and cautious of the writing of many other words for there is no end to them. And what what the author of Ecclesiastes means is there's always another self-help book out there or another philosophy out there or another religion out there, or another ideology out there, and be careful of that because they don't align with the Word of God, and there's no end to how many the demonic realm can spin out for you. But the Word of God is the only thing is trustworthy and true, and it comes from one shepherd, the author of Ecclesiastes says, and is beneficial for teaching and rebuking and guiding you. And it should be the filter for all those other writing of books and philosophies and ideas. And so that's what he means by worldliness. Any message, any ideology, any philosophy, any teaching, any media message, any movie or music or any religion that does not align with the word of God. Any way of this is how you should live that does not align with the word of God. This is what will make you happy and content. That does not align with the word of God. Reject. Reject. In 1 John, the term little children refers to the whole group of recipients of the letter rather than a select group within it. Thus, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 through 14, there are not three distinct groups being addressed, but the whole group, little children, followed by two subgroups, fathers and young people. These two subgroups seem to be distinguished by age and spiritual maturity. 
All throughout the Bible, when Paul and John use words like children, they don't mean little children, literally. He means the entire believers, the entire group. Then he will refer to the fathers who are older and wiser in the faith, and he will refer to the young men who are new believers, younger, and their experience of wisdom. And by fathers and young men, he means that in that non-sex, non-gender, universal kind of a sense. Verse 12, I am writing to you little children that your sins have been forgiven because his name, because of his name. I am writing to you, Father, that you may know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young people, that you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, that you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, that you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young people, that you are strong, and the word of God resides in you, and you have conquered the evil one. He addresses the whole community as children of Yahweh, and John declares that what binds them together is that their sins have forgiven, forgiven through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So I'm writing you, little children, that your sins have been forgiven because of his name. Now, name means character in the ancient world. When you give somebody a name, they would often name people. In our culture, we often name people because we like the sound of it. Or, or it's, it's, it's honoring somebody in our family in some kind of a way. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just different than what they would do. When they would name people in the ancient world, they would name them based on the character of the kid. Some people would actually even wait six months to name their kids. Right? I mean, it's not like your kids are doing a whole lot in the first six months that you really need to call them towards you, or they don't even understand their name, that kind of stuff. So they would wait six months to see if they see something about the kid, and they would name them that. Or they might name them based on the character of God, that God had done something for them. Or they would name the character of what they hoped the child would be one day. We, we kind of have an idea of this when we do baby dedications, and they ask you to pick out a Bible verse, and you pick out a Bible verse because that's your hope for your child and the future, and it's that kind of an idea. Therefore, it was also not uncommon for people to have multiple names in the ancient world. They could earn more and more names. Like, we're familiar with a first, a middle, and last name, and then sometimes some of us have nicknames, but it wasn't uncommon for them to have multiple nicknames. If they did something new or different in their life, somebody would be like, hey, and they would name him after their character. Sometimes, like, when we get to people like Nabal, and in 1 Samuel chapter 22, and Nabal means fool, and that was his name. And you're like, what mother names her child fool? Oh, look at this beautiful child. I will name him fool. Most likely, that became his nickname because that's what he started to become as he got older and older. And probably, most likely, they didn't call him the face, but that's what everybody called. And so you could get multiple names over time. If you ever heard, read the books of James Fenimore Cooper, um, he wrote a book series of, um, um, well, the most famous of them was made in a movie called Last of the Mohicans. And in that, he has multiple names, multiple names throughout the series. As you keep going through the series and he gets older and older, he gets more and more nicknames based on what he is doing and what he's accomplished in his character that people are seeing in him. This is what he's, so this is character. So when Jesus says, pray in my name, he doesn't mean throw Jesus Christ at the end of your prayer, which there's nothing wrong with that. He's saying, pray these things in my name, meaning according to my character. Pray the things that align with my character, align with who I am. And so what he's saying is, that I'm writing to you little children, that your sins are forgiven because of his character. 
His being, His essence, not yours. So what binds you all together? All your different denominations, all your age groups, all your genders. What binds you together? That He died for you because of Him, not you. It was not your age group that brought salvation. It was not your ethnicity that brought salvation. It was not your gender that accomplished this. It was not your sub-hobby group or gentleman's or ladies' group that brought it. It was his character, his essence, his being, his work that saved you. Therefore, it's him and his work that binds you together. That's what you have in common. That's what unifies you. It doesn't matter that you used to be Jews. It doesn't matter that you used to be Gentiles. It doesn't matter what your family is pulling you towards. You have been bound together in a new person, a new community. All ties die away. It doesn't mean that you cease to be Jewish, and that didn't matter. It doesn't mean that your culture has to die. The, the way you're thinking, it just means that this overrides all that. And that's what unifies you. So a church that is falling apart, a church that is de-unified, he's saying this is what binds you together, that you all have been atoned for through his character. The fathers, the old, the people who have done the faith for a long time, they've been around for a long time. They have experience. And writing you fathers that you know him, who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you fathers because you do know him. You've, you've known him for a long time. You have great wisdom. Here's the temptation. The older people have this temptation. I'm not knocking on you older people because I'll get to the younger people later. Okay, you're just first. And I'm not saying this is true of all of you. I'm just saying that the temptation of an old person is to have experienced and done a lot. You've already racked your head against the wall. You've already learned that that doesn't work, that that's not wise. You already know your regrets. You know what you would like to do differently. You have a lot of wisdom and experience. And it's very easy to look at the young generation and say, oh my gosh, that's not going to work. Right? Like if only, I know you're going to hate it when I say this, but you don't understand yet. Right? Just trust me. And, 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 but the, tempta the temptation is that you start seeing them as ideological, brand new ideas that won't work, wild, energetic, Oh, don't worry. Give them enough time and they'll be tired just like us too. They'll feel defeated just like us too. All that kind of stuff. And, 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 but, and then it becomes easy to say they won't listen to us. Or they're too out of control. Or they're too young. Or they're too immature. And what John is saying is no. You need to be involved in the younger people's lives. You need to be discipling them. You need to be training them. You need to be harnessing that energy. You need to be harnessing that energy. I'm writing to you, young people, because you've conquered the evil one. You young people, you have lots of energy to go out there and conquer the world. The older people typically are tired. They're worn out. They have fought the fight, and it has kicked them hard. It doesn't mean that they've lost. It doesn't mean that they've given up. It doesn't mean that they're completely defeated, but they're still tired. They're tired. But you have energy, and you've conquered them. And but so don't get too wild and just spin out of control. Don't waste your energy in the wrong things. He's not just saying you're wise and you've conquered. What he's saying is use that wisdom. 
go out and conquer. Older people, use your wisdom to direct the young people on the right path. And then not just even age young, but the 40-year-old man who just comes to Christ. Sometimes they're invigorated with the young youth because this is all new to them and exciting to them, and they're ready to go out and do things. You young people, don't just have tons of energy and try to change the world. Conquer the evil one. Don't just try to change things to be different and new. Conquer. Use your energy to actually conquer evil. Older people, direct them. Give the wisdom. Help point them. You've lost it. You've somewhat been, you're maybe defeated in some areas. You feel like that's, that's hopeless. Nothing ever changes. I've already tried that. Well, then use your wisdom to direct them. And now you have somebody who's younger, newer, and lots of time has gone by. We know that sometimes it's just about the right timing. It's not that what you did was useless. It's not that you weren't good enough. It's not that they could never happen. It just meant that maybe not all the pieces were in the right place, culturally speaking. Or maybe you, you cracked it enough when you were young, but now it's ready to be burst open. And so now use your wisdom to point them in the right direction so that they can use the energy and continue the fight that you once started to kick the darkness until it bleeds daylight. Verse 14, I have written to you children that you know the Father. Once again, what binds you together, the first thing that binds all of them together is that they have been forgiven through Christ Jesus. The second thing that binds them together is they both know the Father. They both know the same God. Remember, we talked about this in the previous section. They both know what binds you together is that you have a common God now. You have a common goal. None of those other hobbies matter. So I've written to you, fathers, that you've known him from the beginning. You're the ones who have known him longer than young men. And I've written to you, young people, that you are strong. And the word of God resides in you. And you have conquered the evil one. Now he adds the strength part. You have the energy to do this. You have the strength. And so what he's calling the church together is, this is what unifies you. Don't look at them and say, oh, you're just defeated, you're narrow-minded, or you're saying this can't work, and da-da-da-da, and you don't have the energy and the passion anymore, and we want to go out there and do all this kind of stuff, and we're on fire, and, I got, and you're not on fire anymore. And don't look at them and say, oh my gosh, you're just out of control, or you just have bad ideas, or you'll find out later how defeated life can make you, and all that kind of stuff, or you've got crazy ideas, or that won't work, or whatever. What binds you together is Christ. And what binds you together is knowing him and being saved by him. And allow that. Don't see the differences that are minor. See the commonality that is huge. And then come together and children or young men, young women, allow the older men and older women to guide you in their wisdom and experience. As you go out with your strength and your energy and your youth, and you conquer the darkness that is passing away and the light is shining. And older men and older women allow the energy of the youth to be unharnessed. Direct it with your wisdom and allow them to say, maybe it'll work this time because maybe it will work this time. Or allow them to continue and finish the work that you began. Because this is what will bind you together. And this is how the church gets things done. Now that he's united them and showed them what their strengths are and what they have together, now he's ready to say, reject the worldliness. 
reject the worldliness. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Because all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the arrogance that produces material, produced by material possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with all of its desires, but the person who does the will of Yahweh or the will of God remains forever. Do not love the world or the thing in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world is the moral order of humans who are defiant to God. Do not love the world, the moral order of humans away from God. The autonomy of the world, that we will follow our heart, just do it, have it our way. We will write our own laws and form our own paths. That we will be without the Holy Spirit guiding us because we know how to do it. We know how to live that. And then the things that it produces. So when he says, do not love the world, he means the philosophy and the idea that my way and my heart will actually produce what I want and it will give me joy and contentment and what I want to do will bring peace. And then the things of the world is what that produces. It's the music that it produces. It's the movies that it produces. It's the materialism it produces. It's the political parties that it produces. It's the economic ways that it produces. It's all that stuff. It's the institutions it produces, the religions it produces. And John is saying, do not love that. Because remember, the world is darkness and Christ is light. If you love the world and the things of the world, then you're loving the darkness. And if you're loving the darkness, then you hate God and you hate the commandments of God and you hate your brothers and sisters. And we see this, right? Does the, the world talks about love all the time, and then it turns on people and destroys them, and it even eats its own. All we care about is the love. We need to pass this law because it's loving to those people over there, and then they turn on each other, and they use it for their own gain somehow, and they don't even care about those people. This is what John is saying. That's not love. Because all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the arrogance produced by material possessions. The word flesh refers to all the human experiences and desires that are not conformed to the will of Yahweh. It describes the human nature incapable of attaining to God unless it is recreated by his spirit. It is the seeking of our own will and desire instead of that of Yahweh's. The flesh here doesn't refer to the material body. It is sarks, and it refers to autonomy. Autonomy, my self-law, is my experiences, my desires, the things that I want from my life, the things that I want the world to be, the things that I'm going to try to make it be. And it's the ideas that agree with that. And then I follow those because they make me feel better than God's law. Or it's the ideas that I've created out of those desires. And so I have a way that I think is right. I have a way of thinking that I believe will make me happy and make me feel content and will get me what I want. And those ideas and those desires, those laws that I write, they create institutions. 
They create corporations. They create policies. They create political parties. They create industries. They create religions. And then those institutions and ideas begin to shape the desires and the laws and the way of thinking of other people that they buy into that and think, if I had that, or if I did that, or if I followed that, or if I think like that, that will make me happy. That will make me content. That will make my life the way that I want. It will get me what I want. And it completely contradicts the commandments of God. Adam and Eve in the garden is saying, my flesh looks at the fruit of the tree and says, yes, that will get me wisdom. Not God. God won't give me wisdom. That will get me wisdom. Or I do believe that God can give me some wisdom, but this will get it for me faster and better on my terms. With God, I had to wait for him to find the right timing. For God, I might actually have to suffer a little bit. For God, I had to be in alignment with him. But with that, I can seize it now. I can have it my way and fall in my heart and just do it and have it now. And it will be instant gratification. It will cost me less. It's the same thing that the devil offered Jesus. Bow down to me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. Jesus already had all the kingdoms of the earth. He's God. But Philippians tells us that he emptied himself of that authority of God. Not that he ceased to be God, not that he no longer was equal with God, but he no longer decided he was no longer exploiting his Godhood, using it, dominating an authoritative sense. Instead, he became a servant. But the only way that he could get that back is if he was obedient to God through the cross. And then he'd be vindicated back to the right hand of God and he'd get it all back. And that's what Daniel 7 is envisioning, is the Son of Man coming and receiving all the kingdoms back. And so what the devil says to him is says, don't wait for God. God's been making you suffer in the wilderness for 40 days. Take it now and make bread for yourself. Waiting for God is not fun. Waiting for God is not comfortable. Waiting for God has not produced contentment, satisfaction in your belly, strength in your bones, clarity of thought. Seize it and make bread now your way. Then the next one was like, I'll give you the kingdoms now. It's way easier to bow down to me than go to the cross. The devil did not know that Jesus had to go to the cross in order to be resurrected to come back to life again. He doesn't know that. Because it says not even the prophets who prophesied Christ on the cross understood what that meant. But what he didn't know after watching humanity and God working with humanity for thousands of years is that God always takes you through trials first. We knew that if this was the ultimate Messiah, and there are passages about suffering in Isaiah 53, that the the devil can read the Bible for himself, he knew, oh, if you're the Messiah, you're going to go through suffering on a great level, right? I mean, look at the suffering of Moses. And Moses said the Messiah would be greater than him. So that means your suffering is going to be greater. So if you bow a knee down to me now, instant gratification, I'll make it so easy for you. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you what you want, your way. Even if the devil wasn't a liar and followed through with that, eventually when God came back to conquer the evil, Christ would have to give them all up. And it wouldn't last for all eternity. 
And not only that, there would be no kingdom of God because God would have sinned. And then the whole thing. And so Christ says, no. I will go to the cross. Because the cross is going to produce a better and more long-lasting contentment, joy, satisfaction, and completion. And I'll show you in the garden that I don't really want to die. But what I want is what God wants more. That's the desires of the world. The desires of the world is to have it my way because I believe it will be faster and better and more instant and it will get me what I want. And I won't have to go through all those obedience and that suffering that God wants me to go through. And in fact, that takes so long that maybe he's not even going to actually give it to me. But even then, it's all still self-centered because none of it cares about just knowing God. It's like I'll only be your friend if it's always easy and always comfortable. And we always talk about fun things that I want to talk about. It always makes me feel happy in the end. But if there's any conflict, and it's ever uncomfortable, and we're talking about what you want, then I'm going to go somewhere else where it's easier, where I can find somebody who will talk about what I want to want, talk about until they figure me out too. And then I'll find somebody else. And that's what the world does. Well, I'll do this thing for a while until I finally realize that it's actually not making me happy. And then I'll say, well, okay, well, that didn't work, or it worked for a while, so I'll go find this other thing. And that's what we do. We change philosophies and ideologies like we change clothes. And God is saying, no, no, no. Don't love that. Don't love that. What in the world ever died for you? What in the world ever unified you? What in the world ever gave you life? What in the world ever gave you contentment and joy? Yes. It's not going to be easy to be a Christian, but in the long run, his yoke and his burden is much lighter. Because you're not completely on your own trying to make yourself happy and all you have to do is have faith in him. And it won't bring the same consequences that the world brings. You may have to suffer, but it won't be earth-shattering consequences. And it won't be you spinning your tires in the mud wondering why nothing is getting better. Don't love that. That's the desire of the flesh. The desire of the eyes. Now it sounds like it might be the same thing, it refers to the sinful cravings that are activated by what man sees, which leads to the coveting them. It is about acquiring material things for one's own desires rather than to the benefit of others. First one, the desire of the flesh, is autonomy. It's the ideas that I buy into. It's that I think my way is better, and I can choose what I want, and I'm going to align myself with this worldly system. The desires of the eyes are the things. Ooh, if I only had that. If I had that person. If I had that perfect lawyer, that perfect daughter, that doctor, that perfect woman, that perfect man. If I had that interaction. If I had alcohol. If I had drugs. If I had that kind of money, that kind of power. If I could just watch movies all the time. If I could... Whatever. If I had those things, that stuff, if I had that house and that neighborhood with those kind of kids and that kind of husband, the grass is always greener on the other side, then I would be happy. So this refers more to the things that you see, the materialism, that if I had that, things would be better. Now remember, sometimes the grass is greener on the other side. It really truly is. When you look over the fence, 
You're not an idiot. It's not like there's all a bunch of brown spots everywhere and you're actually seeing green. There is something over there that something might be a little bit better than what you have. Maybe you have a kid that's not very thankful. And you look over their kids and they're like, wow, they're so thankful. That might be actually true. That kid is more thankful than your kids. Maybe that spouse is more hardworking. You look over there and you're like, wow, their spouse is hardworking. Maybe you look at that job and you're like, wow, they appreciate their employers better. And that's true. They do. So I don't want to deny. I think it's false to deny the grass is green on their side. But here's what it, what, but here, before you think I'm, it's just the brown spots are in different places. And here you see a brown spot and you look over there and you're like, oh, that's green. But you're so focused on that green spot over there that you've missed all the other brown spots. And they're just different. Yeah, they have thankful kids. But their kids are lazy. And yours are hardworking. Yeah, you, the employer is more thankful. But he also works the crap out of you. He appreciates you, but that's because he treats you like a slave. There's always going to be something. And what you're looking at is what you don't have and what you wish you had. And then you're ignoring all those other things. Because not everybody's problems are all in the same place. And so that's what you need to keep in mind. I mean, you don't have to lie to yourself and say, oh, no, it's actually all brown spots over there and I'm just deluding myself. But Christianity is the only thing that offers you, for the sake of the analogy and keeping it consistent, a completely thorough green lawn. It does require work, but he did the work for you. And he doesn't want you to join you in maintaining the lawn, but he will join you in doing it. And that's what Christianity offers. But that green lawn is not that you have the perfect job or the perfect spouse or the perfect children or the greatest house or material gain and wealth and a great checkbook. And like That perfect lawn is contentment and joy and life despite the fallen world. And that eventually one day he'll make the lawn completely green in his second coming. He redeems the world. And that's what we need to focus on. And then if we say, Christ is using me to help make this lawn completely green that I'm going to work in the life of my spouse to help them become more like that. I'm going to work, not change them and fix them, but to partner and join God. And how can I encourage them and help them? How can I change my workplace? How can I make the world look like God? Because just like Adam and Eve were put in a garden and then told to make the world look like that garden, we are placed in the world that is not a garden, it's a wilderness. But then Christ comes into us and begins to turn us into a garden. And then he makes that garden bigger and bigger and more and more lush sanctification so that we can go out and help other people witnessing and loving and that kind of stuff. And that's what he's calling you to. The phrase, the pride of life, refers to the boasting about possessions, the accomplishments or status. This person places his confidence in those things to ensure his security and significance without the need of Yahweh. Some translations, the arrogance produced by material possessions, but that's the pride of life. So this is where, look at me. Look at what I accomplished in my job. Look how much money I have. Look at the spouse that I have. Look at the home. It's when I begin to brag about my accomplishments. 
But it's always ironic because we can look at the same home and complain about how we don't have enough and it should be better. But then we turn to other people and say, look how awesome I am that I have this home and you don't. So we're looking at one yard and we're looking, oh, I wish I had a bigger house. But then we turn to another person's yard and say, oh, I'm better than you. I've got a better house than you. It's kind of like how we struggle with low self-esteem and pride at the same time. Everyone, you're like, you can beat yourself up and hate yourself and self-loathe and think I'm not good enough. And then at the same time, you turn around and you're like, well, at least I'm not like them. Look at how much I've accomplished. I'm so, I'm so much better in this area than them. And we do this, we're so contradictory. It's like we want compact cars that are spacious. <laughs> we want to go on exotic vacations that are close by and near and don't require a lot of travel. This is, we're so contradictory. We're so contradictory. God says, be careful of those things. Be careful of ideas or philosophies that begin to contradict what God says and you think that they'll be better for you. Be careful of the things that you see in the world and you think, if I only had that, that would make me happier than what Christ has provided for me. And be careful of bragging about what you've accomplished rather than being thankful for what Christ has done for you. And anything that you're listening to, watching, people you're hanging out with, political parties, financial institutions that begin to encourage that, that's dangerous. When we think if we vote that person to power, that will fix our country. And if we don't get him in power, we cry because we feel like it's the end of America. But Chronicles says, if my people get on their knees and cry out to me and repent, then I'll heal the nation. Not when you get the right person in power, but when you, the church, repents of how you've bought in to the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. If only I could have this much money and buy those things on Amazon. Or I can't live with that music. I know the lyrics and I know the message of the movie is not good, but I really enjoy it. I'm going to listen. I'm not saying that you can never listen to anything that doesn't completely agree with God because then you're doomed because you're not going to find anything. But remember, filter, filter, filter. I'm not saying that you can't ever say, well, I'm not going to vote now. No, no, no. Filter, filter, filter. The idea is like, do you watch that movie and say, but that doesn't agree with the Bible and that's actually not going to work. Like, are you keeping your brain turned on? When you're listening to music, are you keeping your brain turned on? If you're listening to the politician, are you keeping your brain turned on? Yes. As I've prayed and struggle, this is how I vote. I don't have a political party. Okay, but I vote for who I think will destroy the country the slowest. <laughs> and, and I don't know who that is because I don't know everything and I don't know who they are. So in my great angst and prayer, I try to do the best I can and hope that I'm right. And I don't think, oh, you're going to fix us. I think of all everything that I've figured out with the brain that God has given me and all of my prayer, I feel like this is the best and least destructive thing for the nation. But then ultimately, and I say, but I don't know, but you do, God. So may your will be done. And that's where I say I'm still active in politics. I'm still active in the nation. I'm still going to be paying attention, but I'm not putting all my hopes in that. I'm going to get the, yeah, I want to try to find a good lawyer and somebody will represent that. But in the end, 
We know that good lawyers can lose cases and bad lawyers can win cases. And the end is God. And so, yes, I will use the brain and I will be actively involved, but ultimately I'm resting in God. Yes, I can listen to the music in the movie, but ultimately I can say that doesn't align with the Bible. And I've been noticing that watching this kind of stuff that much has begun to affect me. And maybe I need to take a break from that kind of stuff because it's affecting me. And I'm not saying it's evil and bad and how dare you watch that stuff. And there are some things that that's true. But I'm saying I can't because it's affecting me. And that's where I need accountability partners. I need the church. I need the young men. I need the older men. I need the old young women. I need the older women. I need the body of Christ all working together. To, because sometimes I can't see it. And sometimes somebody else has to say, your thinking has changed and that's not godly. And this is why you need the community together, children, older people, and young people, to reject worldliness. Why? Why do you reject the worldliness? Because it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. It's not what the Father produced. It's what the sin nature produced. And the world is passing away with all of its desires, but the person who does the will of God remains forever. The things of the world will make you happy for a while. Non-believers can be happy for a while. They can have fun for a while. I always thought it was kind of unfortunate that certain leaders in the church would be like, all those people are miserable. They're never happy. It's never working out well for them. It's like, really? They got really big smiles on their face right now. Oh, yeah, but they're dead on the inside. And it's like, okay, there is some truth to that. Now we're getting a little bit closer, right? They don't have joy and contentment, but they are happy. They are having fun. That's a little closer. It's not working out for well for them. Wow, they have way more money and they're more successful than I am. It seems to be working out for them. Oh, but now if we go a little bit deeper, yeah, but that's not actually bringing contentment. And other areas of their family, like life, is falling apart as a result of it. It was just unfortunate to say they're not happy. They're not having fun. It's never working out well for them. John never says that. What John ultimately says is it's not bringing them life to the fullest and joy complete. And ultimately, in the end, it's all going to pass away. So it has no longevity. It's not from God. Therefore, it won't bring a long-lasting life. It won't bring a long-lasting contentment. It won't bring you the joy. It can mask it, and you will be happy for a while, but eventually all the problems will return. The emptiness will return. And then you'll have to hit it again. And the drug can be anything. It can be family. I'll hit the family. If I'm with my family, I'm happy. But when they're gone, I'm not. It can be entertainment. When I'm watching movies, I'm happy. But when I'm not, I'm not. It can be money and power. When I'm at work and I'm feeling powerful, I'm good. But when I come home and the family's out of control, well, I'll go back to work and get another hit. It can be anything. It can be church. At church, I feel complete and fulfilled. And I'm on the top, mountaintop experience singing songs. But when I come home, I don't have that feeling anymore. So I'll go back to church. I'll go to another church on Saturday. And I'll chapel on this. And I'll just keep getting my hits. And we medicate and we hit our drug to feel that again. And that's what John's talking about. That won't last. It is bringing you happy. It is feels good. It does hit something. But it doesn't last. But 
The person who does the will of God remains forever. The one who is obedient, the one who abides in him, the one who walks with him, the one who repents and goes to Christ our advocate confessing their sins for the atonement of the blood, that's the one who will last forever. That's what will never pass away. This is why Paul will say we are always Christ-centered and heaven-oriented. We're always centered in who Christ is and what he's done for us. My little children, I write to you because your sins have been forgiven because of his name. And we're always kingdom come oriented. That one day everything here that makes it hard and miserable for me and looks attractive but actually is a lie will pass away. But the trials that I had to go through to be through in Christ and brings me life and joy, that will last forever. Christ-centered, kingdom-oriented. Christ-centered, kingdom-coming, oriented. So when Christ said, not my will be done, but yours, and he went to the cross to make the kingdom reality on this earth, it is rooted in the prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what brings contentment. That's what brings satisfaction. That's what allows you to be unified as one people group. When you can't agree on other things in the church, at least we can all agree on that we're in Christ and we're working for the kingdom of God that will come back to earth. And that's what brings joy and contentment. And that pursuit is what assures me that I'm in Christ. I know I'm saved because I desire Christ and I pursue him and I repent when I don't. And I obey him and pursue him and repent when I don't because I love him and I want to know him and I want to abide in him. And so not only is this the condition for saying that you truly know God and you're in him, but it also becomes the assurance for that I truly know him and I'm in him. Does that make sense? Not perfectly, but pursuit, pursuit. And if you have a hard time pursuing, then find somebody else, an older person or a younger person, who can kick you in the rear end to keep you going. Accountability.